Welcome to Word Journeys, a podcast about etymology and the surprising stories behind the origins of English words. This is Dallas, coming to you from Philadelphia. Today's episode will focus on one key word, mammoth, a large extinct elephant of the Pleistocene epoch, which roamed the earth from about 5 million years ago until around 4,500 years ago. We'll find out where the word comes from and how it's used today, and along the way we'll meet some other prehistoric mammals. We'll find out why James Madison once recorded all the anatomical dimensions of a weasel, and we'll even talk about a very, very large block of cheese. Stay with us. Let's start with the etymology. The English word mammoth comes from the Russian mamont, which itself comes from an indigenous Siberian language of the Uralic family. The Uralic family also includes languages such as Estonian, Finnish, and Hungarian. The word itself is made up of two parts. The first part, ma, means earth, which is the same in Finnish. The second part, ant, means horn or maybe reindeer or some kind of antler. The words ma and ant combined to form the Russian mamant. Mamant passed through German and Dutch. The T turned into a TH, and the word was transformed into mammoth. It might have also been influenced by another word that ends in muth, the biblical word behemoth, which is of Hebrew or maybe Egyptian origin, and also used to refer to large animals or elephants. So, from Siberia and perhaps through the influence of behemoth, we get the word mammoth in English. But this transition didn't happen immediately. The earliest citation of a variant of mammoth in English was in 1618 from a Russian-English dictionary that defined the word maimanto as a, quote, sea elephant that works himself underground. Over the course of the next century, there were a few references to mammoths, but only in travelogues and by different words. Maman, Maimanto, Mamatavoy, and Mammoth, eventually, in 1706. All of these words have common elements, meaning earth and horn, and this is also reflected in the folklore of the region. The Kanti people of the Irtish River Basin in Siberia thought that the mammoth was a water spirit. Others thought it only came out at night and disappeared underwater when detected. Or that it lived underground and burrowed tunnels and that it would die if it accidentally came to the surface. Chinese sources describe a creature like this called the Yin Shu, or the hidden rodent, and it was thought to travel underground, break through the banks of rivers, and then die when it got to the surface. Stories about the Yin Shu were likely inspired by mammoth fossils or stories from the Kanti people. Although Western Europeans were not aware of mammoths until the 17th century, Mammoth bones and stories surrounding them had been around in Siberia for a long time. As rumors began to swirl about a giant creature discovered in Siberia, America had its own significant prehistoric discovery. In 1705, a large tooth and some bones were discovered in New York, and this find puzzled early American colonists. They didn't know what it was, and it was temporarily dubbed the Incognitum, meaning unknown in Latin. In 1739, there was another breakthrough. At a place called Salt Lick in Kentucky, which later named itself Big Bone Lick, Kentucky, there was a large number of bones found at a salt lick, and it included bones not of a mammoth, but of a mastodon. 
Now, the mastodon is only distantly related to the mammoth. Mammoths and elephants are closer to each other than to mastodons, evolutionarily speaking. But at this point, no one knew that the mastodon was a separate species from the mammoth, and everyone just applied the term mammoth universally. Before we continue with our story, let's explore the etymology of mastodon. The mastodon was named by Georges Cuvier, a French scientist and one of many who bear the unofficial title Father of Paleontology. He named it by combining two Greek words, mastos, which means breast, and odon, which means tooth. He so named it because the crown of the mastodon tooth had several protrusions that looked like nipples. These protrusions allowed the mastodons to chew leaves and twigs. As more mastodon teeth and bones began to be unearthed in the 18th century, they became very popular collector's items. George Washington actually received one as a gift in 1772, and these bones were also used to settle religious and scientific debates. Cotton Mather, a well-known preacher, used mastodon bones as evidence for the biblical Nephilim, giants who lived before Noah's flood. Another thing to realize is that scientific advancement in geology lagged far behind the other sciences. No one believed in extinction, and almost everyone subscribed to the traditional Christian notion that all animal species created by God were saved from the flood by Noah's ark. Why would God create an animal just for it to go extinct? Adherence to this belief included the foremost scientist and naturalist of 18th century America, Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson believed that any animal known only through fossilized remains wasn't extinct, but simply hadn't been seen yet. He theorized that creatures like these had moved from the east coast of the United States to the largely unexplored west coast. This included the mammoth, as he called it, in the giant sloth. Upon seeing mastodon teeth, Jefferson thought there was a carnivorous elephant roaming the western United States, and he was excited about this prospect because Jefferson had entered into an academic rivalry with a French scientist named Georges-Louis Leclerc de Buffon over Buffon's theory of degeneracy. Buffon thought that America, compared with Europe, had a wet and damp climate, which caused everything living there to degenerate and become weak. This extended to Native Americans, who he considered an inferior race, and that swampy, coastal environments common in North America contributed to their weakness. Many European thinkers agreed with Buffon's theory of degeneracy, but Jefferson was determined to prove them wrong, and to prove that America was just as good a place as Europe. Jefferson thought he could put an end to this debate by presenting Buffon with a fossil of a very large animal, and he did just that, with the mastodon remains, at this point still called the mammoth. But Buffon looked at the mastodon's teeth and at the rest of the bones, and he concluded that it wasn't a mammoth, but an elephant and a hippopotamus that happened to die in the same place, and that they died because America's climate was so wet and damp. Jefferson had to find another way to disprove Buffon. In fact, he enlisted the help of James Madison to measure every single anatomical dimension of a weasel. His conclusion was that the American weasel was in no way smaller, weaker, or more degenerate than the European weasel. But Jefferson needed something bigger, and something live. What he wanted was a 10-foot-tall North American moose, which they don't have in Europe. He went to France and had dinner with Buffon, and Buffon conceded that if Jefferson brought him a moose, he would maybe think about retracting his statements. Jefferson commissioned his friend John Sullivan to find a moose, and eventually Sullivan did, 
but it took so long to stuff the moose and get it ready for shipment that in the meantime its antlers had atrophied and it didn't look very impressive. So they had to find another moose, and took the fresh antlers off that one and attached them to the first moose. In any case, the moose, stuffed and with new antlers, was shipped to France so that Buffon could see it. However, Buffon died six months later and never got a chance to retract his statements. Jefferson had a lifelong interest in mastodon fossils. It was said that when he became president, one could find the White House floor covered with fossils and Jefferson peering over them and sorting them. In fact, when he sent Lewis and Clark on their expedition, he specifically told them to keep an eye out for the mammoth and the giant sloth when they were out west, because he believed they were still roaming around out there. He even wrote, quote, it's not improbable that this voyage of discovery will procure us further information of the mammoth. Jefferson wasn't the only founding father interested in science. Charles Wilson Peale, Revolutionary War veteran, painter, and scientist, opened up one of the first natural science museums in the United States, in Philadelphia in 1786. He got the idea to open a museum after sketching some mammoth fossils and wanting to display them. Later, in 1801, Peale found out there had been a mammoth discovered in upstate New York, and he took his son Rembrandt with him in order to exhume it. This is commemorated in one of his own paintings, called The Exhumation of the Mastodon, and I've posted a link to this image on our webpage. This skeleton, the world's first fully articulated prehistoric skeleton, was displayed at the Peale Museum in Philadelphia in 1801, and this was the height of America's mammoth mania. It was also in 1801 that the word mammoth began to be applied as an adjective describing something very large, and the first instance of this in English also came from Thomas Jefferson, who wrote in a letter that he had received a, quote, mammoth veal weighing 438 pounds. And who could forget the mammoth cheese? In 1802, President Thomas Jefferson was presented with a gift from the town of Chester, Massachusetts. The townspeople collected milk from every cow in the town and built a makeshift cheese press, and the end result was a circular four-foot-by-four-foot four block of cheese bearing an inscription reading, quote, Rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God, a Jeffersonian motto. An unnamed Federalist, deriding this gift, called it a mammoth cheese, and by the time Jefferson left office, Mammoth was a well-established adjective describing something gigantic. It was also during this time that Georges Cuvier correctly identified the mastodon and differentiated it from the mammoth, and finally the American mammoth began to be correctly called the mastodon. I want to finish up by highlighting some of the differences between the mammoth and the mastodon. Both are very large elephant-like animals, covered in hair and with long curved tusks. However, the mastodon is a little bit smaller than the mammoth. The biggest difference is probably their teeth. Mastodons, as I've mentioned previously, had several nipple-like protrusions on their teeth that were useful for cutting and chewing twigs and leaves. Mammoths, on the other hand, had teeth which could cut through vegetation, allowing them to graze like modern elephants. You might also be wondering whether mammoths and mastodons inhabited the earth at the same time, and the answer is yes, although mastodons came earlier. Mastodons first appeared around 30 million years ago, and lived from the Pliocene to the end of the Pleistocene. They died out around 10,000 or 11,000 years ago. 
Mammoths were relatively new, first appearing around 5 million years ago, living from the Pliocene to the Holocene. The last mammoths generally died out in Siberia around 3700 BC, but there was a population of small mammoths that lived on Wrangell Island off the coast of Siberia until 1650 BC, which is about a thousand years after the pyramids were built. We'll end with our Cognate Corner segment, where we consult the American Heritage Dictionary of Proto-Indo-European Roots and find out some cognates of our weekly words. Cognates are the etymological equivalent of cousins. They are words which evolved separately from the same source. Since the word mammoth is from the Uralic language family, and not from the Indo-European family, it couldn't be found in this dictionary. So we'll instead look for English cognates for the odon root in mastodon. The Greek root odon comes from the Proto-Indo-European root dent, which means tooth. English words ultimately derive from that root include tooth, which comes in through Old English, tusk, which comes in through Old English via the Germanic word tunth, Greek-derived words, such as mastodon and orthodontist, and finally, Latin-derived words, such as dental, dentist, dandelion, and trident. That's it for this week. If you would like more information on the topic, or if you want to see a list of words that were covered in this episode, just visit our website at www.wordjourneyspodcast.com. There you'll find a contact page to write in with questions, comments, or suggestions for future topics. Musical selections in this episode come from the United States Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps and Kevin McLeod. Audio help came from Brad Rose. This is Dallas Simons. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.